You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law and I learned something interesting, Paul. What did you learn, Kyla? That UBC Law students listen to this podcast. So hello, UBC Law students. Yes, we just came back from uh, an event this evening, uh, the Law Students Legal Assistance Program, which is a great program at UBC and... um, most of the article students I've hired over the years, a significant number of them have had some connection to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my former article student, who is uh, now many years as a lawyer, uh, Chris, is one of the um, sort of leading people there. And Andrew Bonfield, who worked with me for years and still has uh, this address as uh, his office, has also worked for me for years. And so it was lovely to go there because it was um, a little bit of a homecoming. And also we got to see a lot of nice uh, young articled students who are up-and-coming lawyers. And some of them came up to us and said that they listened to the podcast. Yeah, it kind of felt like maybe we're not doing what I thought we were doing, which was just sort of screaming into the void. Well, the whole idea here of this podcast was just you and I trying to have some of our day-to-day discussions Instead of having them just, you know, in the void where it's just you and I talking about it, we would actually talk about it because we thought maybe there would be somebody who would be interested in listening to it. Yes. That was the concept, right? That, that was. Yeah. That and to talk about how driving law drives the law. Yeah. And uh, then we um, started recording it and uh, it's surprising to us when we hear that uh, people listen to it. Brandon <laughs> listens to it. <laughs> but, but Brandon works for us. He knows us. It's I know, different. but but that you know surprises me that he would listen to it. But I guess we have a lot of discussions that are um, sort of passing as we're walking down the hallway here uh, that other people are not necessarily privy to, and it's not that we're you know, like withholding something from them. It's just that you know it happens to be. Oh, did you see this? Yeah, I saw that. I can't believe they're doing this. And, you know, we kind of sort out our position and what we think the legal position is right there. It's very much like in in the movies and TV. We're walking down a hallway, talking, and sorting out a a big legal issue. We have two, actually, uh, in our downtown office. Each one of our offices has some interesting character. Like the Richmond (laughs) office has a boardroom that is to to beat all boardrooms when it comes to the table there. The table is made out of, uh, like, um, uh, probably three-eighths inch thick steel. Um, in Vancouver, we're in a, an old brick building, but part of it was newly designed by some uh, architects who wanted to make it quite uh, modern and up-to-date, and we took that over. And the other part of the office I built 10 years ago, and it kind of feels old law office so you've got these two sort of separate aspects. And in the old part of the older law office, um, you know, when you walk down the hallway, it feels like you could be in some sort of uh, CTV uh, television law drama. Yeah, and anyway. There's taxidermy and things like that, and that's usually where most of these discussions take place. Yes. Um, but to bring us back to the topic driving of the law. podcast, Driving Law, driving law, law I thought that we would talk about changes that have come and are coming, but I don't want to talk about that thing that we have been talking about and talking about and has been in the news and everybody is probably getting tired of hearing so we are going to talk I think about that there's nothing no, no more of in canada right now that we're actually sold out of yeah well we're not going to say the c word um because i think we need to talk more about the d word which is driving and there are a lot of changes to driving law that have just been implemented in the criminal code not just the ones that have been getting the big attention because of the C stuff, um, there's a lot, a but, lot that's new and a lot that and, people need to know. And things that are coming into effect yes. in the next, um, like six weeks. Well, and that's the thing too, because a lot of people don't know what's in and what's coming in December. So I thought we would give that breakdown. Speaking to a retired judge tonight, who's a lovely guy. I was in front of him many times when I was, um, uh, dealing with matters in court, um, in provincial court, dealing with impaired driving cases, mostly. And um, I really would like to hear his take on some of the changes because we've had 
essentially the same criminal law in Canada with the exception of one change in 2008, but impaired driving law... And all the mandatory minimums that got added under Harper. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, impaired driving law was roughly the same law from the late 80s on. Sure. Uh, And it was just a matter of one technological change when they introduced uh, uh, instruments that used infrared instead of electrochemical... or instead of uh, chemical, not electrochemical, chemical analysis... Um, but the um, dri- impaired driving law was basically the same thing. And now we have a wholesale, major, shocking, disturbing, uh, soon-to-be-much-litigated uh, changes to the criminal code when it comes to impaired driving. Yes. So, ones that everybody knows about with, that have been talked to death, but we'll very briefly just say they're, they're here, are saliva testing. That's yeah. here. Yeah. Um, I did see photos of RCMP officers doing their training on the Drag or Drug Test 5000. I saw that. It was actually Shane Woodford at um, yeah. C- um, tagged us in it. Yeah, from Radio NL in Kamloops tagged you and I with those photos. And I, I meant to write back today. I didn't have time. Uh, it looks like they had about 12 um, of the Drager drug test 5000s. And as you predicted, they bought the printers mm-hmm. uh, and they bought the keyboards which were not necessary. You don't have to have the keyboard uh, to operate it, uh, to, certainly to operate it at the roadside. And they bought the cases for it, which I think probably are necessary depending, you know, by virtue of the fact that you're spending $10,000 almost of taxpayers' money on each one of those things, you better buy the carrying case to make sure that it's uh, protected. Yeah. Well, you said they had about 12 of them, did you say? It looked like about 12. In so the... that's $120,000 of taxpayer money. Yeah, probably hundred to 120000 plus the... Uh, Plus the training. Yeah. So, it, you know, it didn't look like there was somebody from Drager. It looked like it was probably somebody from the RCMP lab. They looked lab. labby. They looked lab-like, yeah, from the lab <laughs> training. Probably some, somebody from Regina who was, well, yeah. Yeah, don't use that uh, that term from this point on forward. But, yes, they look like lab technician types um, so, from the RCMP. So that's here, but it's not here in the sense that the law has been enacted. It's in force and effect, but... We've got the training leg, so um, they'll probably be hitting the streets in the next month, I would imagine. In time for Christmas, for sure. I would imagine there will be some, and I expect there will be some roadblocks. I know that um, the Victoria police said they would have a bunch of roadblocks this weekend and be using SFST officers to deal with mm-hmm. suspect impaired by drugs clients, I, I uh, heard from individuals. the Vancouver Police Department that they received their new books for the new forms for the new drug um, impaired driving things, but not for the 90 days. Those haven't rolled out yet. Just 24s and 12s. Yeah, so that will be interesting. We're going to get all of that stuff. And we'll have, just like we managed to have the Drager Drug Test 5000 months before the police did, we will manage to get a bunch of those documents as soon as we can and hopefully cover it um, on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the FOI process, BC government. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the FOI process takes time, but the, yeah, uh, we'll also all, get them when a client walks into our office with them. That's actually what I was thinking. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, that's probably we'll get easier. it then, and yeah. we'll get the rest. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously step one is the um, is the saliva testing, but we also have sort of a resurgence of the SFSTs. And there are now 13,000 police officers trained across Canada to administer standardized field sobriety tests. So I thought we would talk a little bit about what is an SFST, and they've been here all along. This is one of the things that hasn't changed, but what we're going to see a change in is the frequency of use. Yeah, and I think we have to talk about this. I didn't know you wanted to talk about this. Um, I like the, to blindside you. I know. It's effective. Um, it forces me to uh, to think a little bit. So Kyla and I have been all over the media, you can Google us, talking about the Drager Drug Test 5000. Now, and other people have talked about it, and you know we're happy to have it. There was some advantage we had because we got the manual that came with the mouthpieces, which told us a lot more than actually the manual for the device itself. But um, we came across as really slagging it. And, you know, we're not necessarily saying that the device itself is um, 
flawed. We're just saying that it doesn't work for Canadian law. And we might not have taken such a, an aggressive tone about it, or at least maybe we've been portrayed in the media as having a more aggressive tone than we, than we actually have. We just don't think it's going to work in Canadian law. And one of the things that we've learned since we became quite outspoken about this is that um, the police are paying attention to what we're saying, and a lot of detachments have decided at this point not to buy it, partially as a result of things that we've laid out. And that's fine. I think that's probably an appropriate thing for them to do, to think about it. But we've held back. We haven't told anybody about the problems with standardized field sobriety tests when you are testing for people who have used no a don't certain say it. <laughs> smoked or otherwise Next. ingested <laughs> otherwise ingested what we call on our pirate videos the devil's lettuce <laughs> no 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 we're so not standardized field it. sobriety tests um the uh Kyla, lay them out. I mean, you and I have there been trained for Yes, we have. We've taken the training. Uh, we are certified in the standardized field sobriety test. Paul is, is, is gesturing right now. You can't see, but at his certificate. Um, the three steps of the standardized field sobriety test program. There are so three physical coordination slash quasi-medical tests that are done at the roadside. And they're done in a certain order and designed to sort of elicit a certain outcome. So the first one is the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. And that is where you would hold like a pen or a pen-like object or your finger or something called a stimulus up to a person's face. And then you move it uh, back and forth in a certain pattern that's designed to test whether or not the driver has involuntary jerking of the eye. Um, and that test, I think, is really flawed uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's incredibly easy to do wrong. If you hold the stimulus too high or too low, you're going to cause the eye to jerk because you're going to put it at an angle that it's not supposed to be at. Um, if you take the stimulus too far to the side when you're looking for the, um, the uh, distinct and sustained nystagmus at maximum deviation, you're going to trigger the nystagmus because you're taking the, the eye past the maximum deviation. Um, you can you can sort of manipulate the test results. But another thing about the nystagmus that always gets me is the circumstances in which they're doing the test. Because you see when, when you see people's eyes, and it's not very easy to explain this without showing you, but when you look at something and you're focusing on something, and then there's a distraction, whether it's a flash of light or a movement or a sound, your eye will jerk to be drawn to the thing that is drawing your attention. Your eyes respond with your brain. And so when your brain's attention is diverted, so are your eyes. And when that happens, it can be interpreted by police officers as nystagmus. But if you're doing that in a roadblock scenario, and we're going to see more roadblocks where drug testing is happening, you're going to cause people to have this nystagmus and experience this because of all of the various stimuluses and um, and distractions and light sources that are present at a roadblock that otherwise wouldn't be there in sort of the clinical setting. And I think that that can really negatively impact the results. Well, there's lots of things that can negatively impact the results. We covered a lot of that when we took the class and have learned a lot about it since. But if you have a concussion, for example, or you've had a head injury in the last five years, you can have nystagmus naturally. Mm -hmm. And then there's all of those external things that you talk about. And I think I had one case that was on the Sea to Sky Highway where they had him doing it facing into the sun <laughs> and there was a police cruiser there. Um, so you've got a police cruiser with the lights flashing, uh, vehicles driving up and down the highway, busy traffic, and the person staring into the sun. And the person's had a bunch of concussions because they're a snowboarder. Uh, and, you know, so nystagmus works fine in the clinical setting for alcohol, um, but it doesn't work for many other substances. And it's never been um, studied to the extent that it should be. And it's never been certified for the use uh, with most other intoxicants other than alcohol. 
including the one that we will not mention. It does not work for that purpose. Yes, and Paul mocked me earlier tonight at this LSLAP fundraiser that we were at for having all sorts of random shit in my purse. But as I'm talking, I'm pulling out the drug recognition evaluation card because it talks about whether you would expect to see nystagmus with certain drugs. And you're only really going to see it with depressants, PCP, and inhalants. And frankly, if somebody is high on PCP, you shouldn't be doing a standardized field sobriety test. Because the only reason that the police would be doing that is if they have, and the only, well, not the only reason, the only lawful reason they should be doing it is if they have a reasonable suspicion that a person has alcohol or a drug or a combination of the two in the body. Uh, they can't do the standardized field sobriety tests if they think something's going on, but they don't know what it is, and maybe it's a medical condition, and maybe it's something else, and we see a lot of that in the cases that we get. Um, but you don't, when you're dealing with someone on PCP, you don't need that. You don't have a suspicion. They're on PCP. Well, they could be just still a little bit high, or maybe they're microdosing or something like that, but the, the, I don't, I still don't see, I mean, I'm not a doctor, and I never studied the uh, chemical effects of on muscles in the body. But uh, nystagmus isn't magic, you know. It's a uh, it's an effect on the muscles on the edge of the eye that are pulling on the eye, and they are, you know, uh, affected by alcohol when there's enough alcohol in their body. And if you know if you have enough alcohol in your body, yeah, your your ability to walk is also affected, and it's not just a uh, hand-eye coordination brain thing it's actually alcohol affecting your muscles as well um, and your nerves in your body not but not just your brain and so the whole idea with nystagmus is it's affecting those those muscles around the eye uh, and that's why alcohol does it and why many other things will not do it yeah so they've talked about and and my point here that I wanted to get to you gave a lengthy discussion about the eyes, but the point I wanted to get to was, you know, we mocked the Drager drug test 5,000. Uh, we, we're, we're not mocking it for the device. We're just saying that it's not appropriate for Canadian uh, Canadian application, but uh, you know, maybe it's really good in the in, like uh, uh, employment circumstances or something like that. If you wanted to test uh, pilots before they flew um, to sort of rule them out as being, uh, to ensure they're not intoxicated by some drug, I would encourage um, you know, airlines to consider that and to, to sure. write that into their union contracts or something like that. But the, uh, uh, the issue here is that we haven't really picked apart standardized field sobriety testing and we actually made a conscious decision not to do it. We decided to hang on and wait until after October 17th. Well, it's October 18th. So, and the podcast will be on on the 19th. Yeah. So, we can start picking it apart and, you know, I know the police have put in tons of money and they've been trying to persuade everybody that this is their their new thing. Uh and it's it's um unlike the Drager, it's not objective. Uh it's not a a test by an indifferent device. It's a test conducted by police officers who are not indifferent. They really want to catch somebody. Uh, they're out there, you know, a I, lot I, of them. I, I don't know that you can say that about all police no, officers. No, but, but there but are many, you know. You're doing the test because you suspect somebody has a drug in, in their body and you have confirmation bias. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and that's the phrase I was looking for. I just didn't know it. Now I learned it once again. I've been reminded. Um, but it's not just confirmation bias. You know and I know that there's police officers who are like hoping to fulfill their numbers so they can win the Alexis Award um, every year. And that, you know, they, they, many of them will brag about the fact that they've got yeah. this thing. And so they, they, they park outside of, of bars. Uh, a lot of the time and it's fishing and and they will overlook um the likely uh concerns with mouth alcohol and still go ahead and use an ASD because they want to make sure they win that award or they they they, they don't want to get in trouble for not 
getting enough people over the course of the year. Um, And lots of officers have told us that. And so we know that happens. And so we know that there will be officers who are out there looking, ready to, excited about their new skills that they've got in standardized field sobriety testing. And really, as far as a skill is concerned, it's probably a better skill to use to impress your friends and family than it is to be using in a legal context. I have definitely impressed my friends and family by whipping that out at a party and testing. You whip it out at a party? Yeah, I whip it out at a party. Good I whip you. out the SFSTs and start testing people who are very drunk and uh, I don't know, maybe I get some confirmation bias there because uh, they all perform poorly. It's funny because I have trouble, um, I have trouble conducting the test as well. Um, I, I'm not sure that I'm conducting the test properly. I've been trained, and it's twice actually I've had that training because we had that training again when we had our, our basically our DRE stuff. But the um, so that was a refresher on it. But uh, and and I'm you know I I do it better than I've seen a lots of police officers do it in their in videos. Um, but of course I'm not doing you know I never I never get past the nystagmus test usually with people because I'm not going to make them do the walk and turn and all that because that's such bullshit. It's bullshit, Kyla. It's all bullshit. Well, okay. So those are the other two tests, the walk and turn and the nystagmus, and then the one leg stand, but not in that order. Um, So that's the SFSTs. We're going to be seeing more of them, but they were already there. Another thing that's new And and, and we're going to pick them apart. It's just going to be so easy for us. The thing from, like, the defense perspective about the SFSTs and why we didn't feel the need to make a big deal in the media about it was really it's fertile ground for cross-examination. It's not a thing like a machine where we don't have access to the information about uh, the technology in court that we can use in a way to undermine it. That stuff is really closely guarded. There's a bunch of case law out of Alberta and Ontario that really prevents defense lawyers from getting that information. Currently on reserve before the Supreme Court of Canada, though, so... We may see some development in that area. I'm not feeling optimistic about the outcome of those decisions, but... They, sh- they, they, they should do that. They should. Driving law, make the law, make good law, please, Supreme yes, Court of Canada. Please. Um, no, but I, I think it's because it's such a fertile area for us for cross-examination. And well, we, so we from- also held back for a political reason, because we didn't want to freak people out with legalization. Uh, you know, there's enough people who are out there who are opposed to it. Uh, we didn't want to point out that they really don't have any tools to defect, to detect rather, um, people who are impaired by the devil's lettuce. Okay. I don't want to talk about the devil's lettuce. So I'm going to move on to something else that's new-ish. And that's the drug recognition evaluation program, which has been in the criminal code since 2008. It came in at the same time under C2. I don't know if you remember that. I didn't that. know that. I yeah. remember C2, and I was up in arms about C2. C2 yeah. was a um, real pain in the ass. Just the second time we've seen, you know, saving the people from the drugs, but also adding the the alcohol changes that undermine the concept of justice and fundamental freedoms. But that's just my opinion and yours, I'm sure. Um, anyway, the... I, I was there. I lived yeah, through that. I'm I like, know. I feel like a Vietnam vet who's been through the... <laughs> I've been in the shit. If you're a Vietnam vet and you're you're listening, I apologize for Mr. Doroshenko's offending, insensitive offending you. comment. And, no, uh, I was like, I was a lawyer. comments do not reflect the views of this podcast. I was a, a lawyer fighting, you know. It was like, like fighting in the jungle there. Oh, yeah, C2 it was came so out. hard. Yeah, you know what? We became that much better at what we do. Yeah. And all the, so did all the lawyers across the country who do impaired driving law. And that's, you know... We upped our game. Yeah, that's what happens when there's change. You just have to learn how to do better. Um, and then realize how much more bad you were doing before. <laughs> more bad? Yeah, How yeah. poor you were doing. That's yeah, I know. No, I mean, there's, there's cases I lost back in the... Uh, I was going to say in the 80s. Um, <laughs> in, in the early 2000s that I wouldn't lose now as a result of things I've learned since I was forced to learn them with C2. Yes, Anyway, so we've had the drug recognition evaluation program for about a decade, 
but very few officers trained on it. And I think they're up now to like 700-ish, seven or 800 officers, hopefully getting to 1,000 by the end of the calendar year. Hopefully getting. Ho- hopefully getting, yeah. Uh, it's ridiculous. But what's new about the drug recognition evaluation and the thing that freaks the Fuck ever live, yeah, it, it does, is this, this presumption that they've written into the code. And I almost got into a debate with some lawyers in Calgary uh, on the weekend about it because they were saying that the presumption is really just a codification of what the Supreme Court of Canada said in Bingley. And for those who haven't been following Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence about drug recognition evaluation cases, probably most of you, um, in Bingley, the Supreme Court of Canada said that you don't need to have a voir dire to determine whether or not the DRE officer is an expert by virtue of the code. He's an expert and he's capable of giving an expert opinion. But I don't think that giving an expert opinion necessarily leads to a presumption that what the expert says is correct. In fact, in cases I've had where there have been experts, the you can undermine the, the value or the reliability or the correctness of the expert's opinion through cross-examination, and the court can just not accept it. But a presumption binds the court's hands. The lawyers you were talking to are wrong. Bingley is fairly clear. It says in the regulations that you call them an expert. It doesn't mean that you cannot challenge all of their evidence, everything that that arises from it. The problem that you're pointing out is that in the new legislation, it says that if the drug recognition expert, we call them an evaluator, conducts an evaluation and comes to a conclusion that it's a certain drug uh, is in, and that the person is impaired, and then it comes back from a uh, urine or blood test and says that that drug at any concentration is in the person's body by virtue of the fact that the person guessed the right drug, the individual is therefore guilty of being impaired by that drug. Yes, and you want to talk about and that's con- the that's the fucking dangerous. Presumption. It's so scary, and it's scary for a couple reasons. One is this this confirmation bias that we were just talking about because all they're doing when they test for the blood in the urine to manage the huge predicted increase in lab samples that there's going to be is they're going to test for only what the officer identified so it's like saying sending a package to the lab which is a division of the rcmp and saying i think this thing is in this package please find it when they're testing blood, they run through a standard, right? So they might run through a standard with cocaine in it, and then they set their machine, and then they will, you know, and it's not necessarily cocaine, it's a, some substance that they expect to see with cocaine, uh, and then they will run through the blood, and, you know, they will have to dilute the blood in order to be able to put it into the pipette to be able to put it into the instrument and then put it in the instrument and run it through the instrument and then they expect something to come out and it's timing from when it's uh, you know introduced into the instrument that it comes out compared to the standard that was used yeah and the problem that you've got is that there's they're looking for uh, analytes so specific chemicals that they expect to have traces of that are broken down by the body that you would expect to see when you see cocaine. And bits, and of, so, bits of cocaine, the pieces of, of things that make up cocaine. Yeah, exactly. It's like the puzzle, and they assemble yeah. the jigsaw puzzle. And so they assemble the jigsaw puzzle, and then they're half-assembling a jigsaw. They, first they use a jigsaw puzzle, and then they say, oh, look, there's another jigsaw puzzle that comes out. but And it comes out on peaks on a graph, and... The peaks on a graph can exist for lots of different reasons. You, you can have many different peaks on the graph and you can have many different substances that come out, but it doesn't mean that it's the substance that you speculated about. Right. It's just the one that seems to show up at the same amount of time, but there being millions of molecules and millions of substances and things we've never identified yet that exist on this planet, the possibility for error is significant. And remember, we're talking about a bodily substance. So you're going to have variables in what's in everybody's body. Look, if you got a blood test and it came back and you were told you have AIDS, your blood test shows you have AIDS, you'd probably be like, run it again 
I don't have AIDS, it must be wrong. I don't think a lot of people just accept one test with like devastating news. And yet that's how we treat our criminal justice system when it comes to blood testing. Well, that's what the, that's what the current version of the criminal code says. How long will it last? So I'm just hoping that anybody who um, has one of these cases with the new presumptions of drugs uh, knows how to come at it. They can call us. Uh, it's not necessarily that we know how to come at it, but you know we'll do our best to try and figure it out and help anybody. We help lots of lawyers with uh, impaired driving cases uh, across the country. So, But there's more that's <laughs> scary about this because what I've been told and what seems to be likely just looking at timing and, and ease and whatnot is that it's not going to be blood samples at the end of the drug recognition evaluation. They're going to be taking urine samples. And that's completely fucked up because your urine is just like your body's dumpster. It's all the shit that, <laughs> that your body wants to get rid of. Your body wants to get rid of that it found hanging around and threw down to the kidneys and then it ended up in your piss. Cleaning up your blood, trying to get it out of your body. Yeah. Doing everything to get it out of your body. Yeah. And I mean, whether I, it was there, whether it was introduced into your body two weeks ago or a month ago or uh, a day ago or hours ago, it wants to get it out of your body. A lot of substances can be present um, or well, the substances themselves aren't even present. It's, 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 not it's the, the metabolites yeah. of those substances that can be present in your urine for a long time after use. Sometimes weeks after using certain drugs um, that shall not be named, um, you can have the, the metabolites of those drugs in your urine. So urine testing as confirmation of the drug recognition evaluation that then leads to a presumption of impairment is so incredibly dangerous. I mean, to, to base a criminal conviction with a mandatory penalty of a criminal record and a fine um, and a driving prohibition, to base all of that on such shaky science, I, it, it blows my mind that we're not you know, up in arms in the streets about the degradation of the reasonable doubt standard in our justice system. I, I, I mean, up in arms. I don't think a lot of people understand it, but what really surprises me is that somebody proposed this, that it managed to go through the whole process and become legislation. And I don't know, you went to Parliament and, and the Senate, but I don't think this was anything that we ever discussed. Maybe you did. Maybe you, you were speaking pretty fast. There was so much. There was so much in C46 that, you know, they give you five minutes or seven minutes or ten minutes to introduce your comments, and then they question you, and you get ten pages in your brief. And if they don't ask you questions, if they don't ask you questions about, about it, it, then you kind or of... Or you don't have room to cover it in your brief because random breath testing is a way bigger concern, or whatever the case may be. You can't possibly write about everything about C46. I mean, when I was working on the brief for the Senate, I was thinking, every time I look at this bill, I find something else that just makes me want to, you know, drive a nail through my eye. It almost makes me cry when I think of that Bill C2. That was a little humor for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, I, when I think of Bill C2 and I think of the... So the, the big thing for me for Bill C2 was getting rid of what was called evidence to the contrary. They called it the Carter defense or the two beers defense. And it was essentially in cases where you had evidence that would uh, tend to establish that you weren't over 80 milligrams at the time you were driving and that evidence was believed by the court, it would impeach the readings. And there was good reasons for that. And I knew the good reasons and I never fought it. I never didn't do much. You know, I waited until the law was passed. I didn't go to the House of Commons. I didn't, you know, all you have to do to go to the House of Commons, by the way, is contact them. And if you seem like a relatively intelligent individual, they'll invite you along. It's not some grand thing. Uh, it's nice to go. It's neat and everything, but it's not like, you're not special. But I didn't know that at the time, and I didn't go. And I wish I had gone and talked about Bill C-2, because if I had some of the things, like the things I got afterward, um, you know, with uh, with one of the lab experts saying how many innocent souls were... I was going to say, you could you know, have just shown up with your five-way valve. Yeah, I know. I could have explained it, and we wouldn't have got that. And I, you know, I wonder how many innocent people have been convicted um, in this country as a result of it. And I, and it, it concerns me greatly that I didn't step up and deal with that. And it's one of those things that I wake up at five in the morning and I worry about. Um, and it, it uh, and I feel bad about as a lawyer that I, I regret that I didn't 
um, advocate in that way. And I've been thinking a lot in this last little while, um, thinking about all of these cases that I ran uh, with uh, the substance that's recently been legalized and thinking about my methods of advocating. And I've realized that, you know, you and I are out in the media a lot and we've accomplished a lot beforehand, beforehand rather, with the Dragger Drug Test 5000 by being out in the media and often more than we can accomplish in court. And when we talk about shouting into the void, a lot of the time in court, it feels like we're shouting into the void. Well, that's like, you know... Because the judge's hands are tied. We talked a lot tonight. There was a lot of discussion because it was for the Law Students Legal Advice Program, so a free legal advice program, about access to justice. And I think, you know, one of the things that Chief Justice uh, Bowman spoke um, and talked about was that there needs to be some revolution in the ways that we think about access to justice. And I feel an obligation when I get calls from media outlets to ask for my commentary about this, to give that commentary to try and educate the public. And I think the more we educate the public, the more we are to affect social change that's going to benefit people when it comes to the law. When I first started appearing in media things, um, the one thing I found was a lot of crazy people would be phoning me. <laughs> and you live with, I was talking to Lisa Helps today. She's a, a nice lawyer, smart lawyer here in Vancouver. Um, and uh, we were talking about, you know, you, you, you sticking your neck out. You're worried you're going to say something wrong. You know, you're worried you're going to say something that, that other people, other lawyers are going to point out. Oh, my goodness, what's Doroshenko talking about? That happened in one case. I was it's just the way it was phrased in the in the news story uh, and you sort of live with that fear and you know that fear is probably a good thing because it keeps us from being too um, uh, it keeps us careful in what we have to say mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's also a discouragement from lawyers speaking up and I decided a decade ago uh, that I was going to be willing to stick my neck out a little bit and I don't stick my neck out often on things that I don't know, um, that I'm not in a good position to comment on. Um, and in the last little while, you and I have been in the media a lot, a lot, a lot, uh, but it really is our zone of knowledge. And yeah, I believe that it is our obligation um, by virtue of our position and our particular area of expertise and knowledge to speak up in those cases. Yeah. So, but I, I want to go back to what you mentioned about C2 and evidence to the contrary. Why, Be- Why do you want to go back to that? Because I want to get us back on track with our topic tonight, which is what's new in the criminal code. And evidence to the contrary is new. I, we're probably going to have to do what's coming in another episode because we're taking up our time here. But- Sorry, I guess I've been a little, I've been very philosophical this week thinking yeah. about my role as a lawyer. Um, and it's, okay. it's, it's I'm sorry about that. I apologize for being philosophical. Yeah, is it legalization that's made you philosophical? Yeah, 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 yeah. it's legalization. Yeah, and it's, okay. uh, you know, I was thinking tonight about a client. I, you don't even need to smoke cannabis. Oh, I said it. Shit. <laughs> you Damn did. It. You did. I did fine. Uh, You're the one who ruined it. You've been giving me dirty looks every time I came no. close. And, okay. Um, let's get back on topic. Evidence to the contrary. Because what's new is evidence to the contrary. You are going to be permitted to introduce evidence to the contrary to rebut this big scary presumption about the drug recognition evaluation test. But what is the evidence to the contrary? Because they're only going to be doing a confirmatory test. Is there cocaine? in your urine or is there methamphetamine in your urine whatever the officer thinks it is so you're not going to get your evidence to the contrary of oh he thought it was a cns stimulant but turns out i had a cns depressant which is like the exact opposite so that's my evidence to the contrary i wasn't impaired so where do you get it what is the evidence to the contrary what does that look like for people well the the problem is that it's once again the, the federal government trying to screw us um, instead of being worried about uh, ensuring that innocent people are not convicted and that we actually uh, charge, prosecute, and convict people who are guilty, and I, I'm not enthusiastic about any of this as be, you know, for lots of reasons, 
Um, they're just focused on trying to make sure that it, it looks like there's a fair process a little bit mm-hmm. and that they're trying to screw people over. And, you know, it's it's this is the legislation written by Mothers Against Drunk Driving once again, which it seems to be like the default. Um, and Did we you can, see that Mothers Against Drunk Driving gave an award to the federal they government? They gave an award to the federal government, which is just absolutely... bragged about it on social media? I could not believe that she dra- bragged about it on social media. It is absolutely abhorrent for a lobby group of this sort to have this sort of power and then to have the federal government, uh, a federal minister, talk on social media about how wonderful it is that she received this award from Mothers Against Drunk Driving. This is wrong. Yeah, this is like if, the, if this is not oil, the separation of church and state that we expect in our big oil country. gave Donald Trump the you know man of the year award. People in the U.S. would be like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Are we living in some weird they are living society? in a weird they are, society? They are. They are. Okay, what are you talking enough. about? They've been this saying is not, that, Kyla. This is not an example. No, leave, okay. leave Trump out of this. Leave Trump alone. <laughs> oh my um, God. Yeah. Okay. No, but. What, so if we don't know what evidence to the contrary looks like, my fear is it's going to be this weird decimated version of evidence to the contrary that we got after C2, which is interpreted by the Supreme Court of Canada in Saint-Ange-Lamoureux is just some problem with the administration of the test. So to show that the DRE was done wrong. And then the next step that logically flows from that is how do you, unless you are a defense lawyer who's taken the drug recognition evaluation training and really understands how to do it, which, I mean, how few and far between are we? It's you. Um, I think it's and you. you. I'm, I'm not at your level. There's nobody I know at your level. But if, if that's not it, then then what meets the evidence to the contrary standard? And how does a self-represented person go up against this? I really hope the Supreme Court of Canada fixes some of their mistakes. I want them to, I'd like them to be contrite and apologize um, for um, for not uh, striking down the prohibition on evidence to the contrary. It existed no, for a reason. You know, I, 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 and I, to be fair, I have been a lawyer only after evidence to the contrary was gone. So I never got to experience what life was like with evidence to the contrary, but I don't, I, I actually don't. You had a check care. valve, Kyla. You had a check valve to make sure innocent people weren't convicted. Yes, but you also had something that, as as I've heard other lawyers talk about it, not lawyers who who specialized in the area, but there's a lot of cynicism as well as braggery, maybe about um, clients who would, you know, the two beer defense and ha ha ha. You know, people would just take the stand and say they had two beers. And I I don't like the perception that that creates about the justice system. I never had any of the cases like that. No, of course not. I ran two evidence to the contrary cases and I ran three impaired, I scheduled three impaired driving cases a week for a while. Um, And I twice ran it. Once I ran it and the judge didn't understand. uh, And um, that was painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the other time I ran it was Judge Angela Mattis. Um, I want to say God rest his soul, but I'm atheist. But he was a he was a neat guy. And um, he got it and right off the top. And it was right. It was the right thing to do. He acquitted my client in those circumstances. And it was the appropriate thing. And, you know, my client would, without that evidence to the contrary, he would have been convicted I believe he was an innocent guy. I heard the evidence. I knew the evidence. I had him in my office. I didn't put him on the witness stand to lie. Yeah, no. It was a check valve that protected that guy from a wrongful conviction. But you have to agree, there were people out there, the you know those hardened drunk drivers who who did it a lot, who you know would try and use that defense to game the system, which is probably why they took it away. Oh, they took it away because the lawyers, I mean, my understanding was lawyers in Ontario were not arguing charter things anymore. They weren't arguing all of the things that you argue. They were just basically leaving it to evidence to the contrary. And it was lawyers who didn't conduct a lot of impaired driving cases. And that's all they know. And that's all they knew. And I know that happened here too, because there was, I ended up dealing with matters where people were convicted when a lawyer at a big firm who doesn't conduct a bunch of impaireds decided to run an impaired and all they knew. Well, and you remember, actually, we had a lawyer um, in another province who came to us who was, that's what he intended to do and didn't know that evidence to the contrary was gone. And uh, ultimately it was sorted out and everything worked out. But the, um, 
you know, I, I never, I never relied on that. That was, you know, in a, a couple of cases, I knew it was my final thing that I had. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think it was a very important thing. And yeah, a, I mean, I mean, the fact that it was exploited, the fact that people, some people took advantage of it doesn't mean it was justified to get rid of it no. because there are circumstances where you will have innocent people. And you have seen... I've seen it. ...many times mm-hmm. results that are inaccurate from approved breath-testing instruments. Absolutely. No, I, I know. I just... I don't know. I come and you, at this, and you don't, and we don't have the evidence of it because come, it was right there. I come at this with my own bias, though, too, because I like the challenge of the impaired driving case. I like the intellectual stimulation of the charter issues and the technical issues and the scientific issues. And I don't know that if it were the way that it was in Ontario, it would have been so attracted to this area. There was a conservative senator who came lawyer. up to me. Yeah, maybe. There was a conservative senator who came up to me after I presented in the Senate like five years ago or four years ago or something, a few years back anyway, um, and said, I bet you get an impaired driving case and you probably just put your reading glasses on, you get your highlighter out and you've got a bunch of notes there. And this was after I'd presented. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, you actually, I guess yep. you can. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, what I do. That's, that's me all the weekend, yeah. minus the glasses. But yeah, highlighter, yeah. notepad, post-its. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so evidence to the contrary, new but undefined, this weird nebulous blob of justice? Well, the thing is that, you know, of course they're writing this knowing about St. Angela Maru, mm-hmm. knowing that the Supreme Court of Canada um, basically gave them the rubber stamp to, uh, to injustice uh, with St. Angela Maru and, uh, and, you know, not doing what they should have done in my opinion with the uh oh, and the evidence way that of the contract. Saint Lamoureux has been really narrowed by the appellate courts. Oh and 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 at lower level courts it, you know it's it's now you must prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt as a defense lawyer that there was a problem in the breath testing. But we're not implying that standard in fact. It's just that That's the, how it the feels. tickets That's show how it that everything's feels. fine yeah. so you're going to have to show me something other than the tickets but you can't have it. And, you know, how much education can you give a judge now about the, about the instrument? So you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, before the person could testify, the evidence would be there, uh, they weren't over 80 milligrams. Now you've got to try and explain the instrument to a judge and explain what the problem is to a yeah. judge and to explain why this procedural error by the police officer is a procedural error um, that you know, is an essential procedure. I had a judge in an impaired trial stand down a witness's testimony and make me explain the entire way that the instrument worked and the particular problem that I was trying to, you know, elicit the evidence about, where I was going with my argument, what it all meant, how the standard related to this, that, and the other thing. Um, And, like, I spent, like, an hour teaching a course on how a breathalyzer works to the judge so that he could understand what to listen for in the evidence and then I was going to go back and do it but with the officer and get him to say all those things so that they were the evidence in 2006 but it was good it was good that he did that no it was good that the judge asked that but I mean the problem is that you know you've got to be in a position to explain that and good luck and what if you're not on that day you know, in 2005, I had a similar circumstance with a judge where the judge, you know, went out and we were making an argument with respect to um, the standard that was used to to ensure that the instrument was functioning properly. And I had to explain it to the judge. And frankly, I was not in the position to explain it to the judge. I'd been a lawyer for six years. I'd done hundreds of impaireds, but I couldn't explain it the way that you could explain it or that I can explain it now. And I was I was handicapped. My client ultimately, uh, you know, it was a, a it wasn't a disservice to my client because there was not many lawyers. I mean, I had an expert witness there, and I went and talked to the expert witness and went back in to try and explain. It. And the expert witness wasn't, ex- you know, uh, wasn't I, I wasn't not capable of explaining it, and I was explaining it as the expert witness did. Now I would have no trouble explaining it. Yeah. Uh, but the point was educating the judge um, is a unrealistic expectation of a defense lawyer um, and do you have to have an expert witness when you can't get somebody because you can't get the instrument the company that manufactures them won't sell them the only way we've got them is through um, 
sort of our ways. Our ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you don't even have expert witnesses who can get a hold of them. And you know that there's something wrong and you know what's wrong, but you haven't got a method of explaining it to the judge and the judge isn't going to understand. All right. That's a really depressing note. We're going to end on a depressing note again, folks. I'm sorry. We're I'm, out of time. I'm preaching. Uh, Kyle is here and I'm preaching to the converted when I it's talk true. like that. It's true. But uh, we didn't get time to cover everything that's coming, which is the alcohol changes coming in December. So we will do that in a future podcast. Well, we have lots between, of time until December to discuss that. Between now and December, yeah. yes. Um, and we also didn't talk about the blood drug concentration regulations. And there's more than just THC that they're going to be regulating in your body. And we will have to get to that at some point. And there's one thing I think that we should point out. Kyla reads all of the legislation when it comes out. And I read most of the legislation when it comes out. But Going understand home to it. Bestiality legislation. Have fun with that. I will. Um, the uh, I won't find. I wouldn't find that fun. So, uh, but the, um, the we read it all, and until it's actually in the code or it's in written into the Motor Vehicle Act, and you see how it all fits in there, uh, and then you see how the government intends to implement it, it's hard to see the the the, the way that it's going to work out. So we're now seeing all of this legislation that we talked about months ago. Um, coming into effect uh, as a result of legalization and, uh, you know, being timed with it. And um, we're going to do our best to try and explain it because these are wholesale changes that are really uh, dramatic in our law. And we started off with the discussion about the fact that impaired driving law has been mostly the same for a long time. That's all changed. Vastly different. It's a new frontier. Yeah. Um, Which makes it exciting, but scary and the unknown is a big bad wolf and i think we're pretty well placed you and me because we we're i'm not we're, too I'm old ready. to be able to i'm not too old to not learn it and you are um as knowledgeable as anybody i've ever met in this and you've read the stuff so i think we're pretty good well placed but you know when two when uh, evidence of the contrary was struck down um it was hard for some older lawyers yep yeah well i, I know that and I you know we may them. we may see some people struggling judges lawyers police officers crown counsel we're going to see people struggling with these new laws and that's why on driving law <laughs> the podcast that talks about how driving law drives the law we like to try and explain it as best that we can in the limited amount of time we have. And that's all the time we have this week. So please tune in next week. We've got a really interesting slate of guests and issues coming up over the next couple of weeks. So it's not just going to be me and Paul. Between now and Christmas. Between now and Christmas, we're going to have some really interesting stuff. So please keep listening. Thank you to all of our listeners at UBC and beyond. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us anytime. Our email is on our website uh, at vancouvercriminallaw.com or you can give us a call 604-685-8889. Kyla doesn't often have a lot of time to chat, but I'm willing to chat. If you've got some interesting thing, give us a call. If you've got a question, yeah, if not, you need some. I'm not trying to be like short or rude or scary. No, and it's if just I come so, off that so way, busy, I'm not trying to be, and I apologize if I seem abrupt. It's just I'm, I'm squeezing every minute out of every day. Yeah. Okay. Thank right. you for listening. Thank you.